0: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss.
1: In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable, and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today.
2: I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia?
1: Please explain.
3: Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy.
0: Not now, not ever. I mean... (laughs) These comments are completely inappropriate.
3: I'm sure she's right.
0: But I ain't spending
3: any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves.
1: Oh, fair shake of the sauce
3: bottle,
1: mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hello there, Mark Kenny here with another Democracy Sausage Extra, and I have a real treat for you this episode because I have not one but two fantastic discussants. Nick Bryant is well known in Australia because he was based here for the BBC, during which time he made some of the more adroit observations about this country as an articulate, if very fond, outsider. In fact, he's done this kind of thing all his life, and these days is BBC's New York correspondent, where, in exasperation, one suspects, he's turned out a smashingly good book called When America Stopped Being Great, A History of the Present. Ostensibly, it is an explanation of Trump's America, but he shows this is really an extension of Ronald Reagan's America, but we'll come to that. Dr Nick Bryant joins Democracy Sausage, a career highlight for him, I'm sure, from the US. Welcome, Nick. Welcome, Nick.
0: It really is. It's great to be here. Thanks very much for having me.
1: You're very kind. Also from the US, at least originally but now very firmly ensconced in the ACT region is Professor Brian Schmidt AC, Vice-Chancellor of this great university and, of course, a Nobel Prize-winning physicist. Welcome, Brian. Good to be back, Mark. Nick, was I right? Was it in exasperation that you uh, decided to write this uh, this book when America stopped
0: being great? It was certainly out of love. Uh, it was certainly out of great affection for a country that I really fell in love with before I arrived here, and a country I arrived in as a young teenager, and just was bowled over by it. It was a country that more than fulfilled my expectations. I came here in 1984 on the eve of the LA Olympics. It was that great summertime of American resurgence. Team USA saw this extraordinary gold rush. They just won gold medal after gold medal. And after the long national nightmare of Vietnam and Watergate and the Iranian hostage crisis, America really did get its mojo back. And later that year, of course, Ronald Reagan went on to win a landslide. It's morning again in America, he said. And he won 49 out of 50 states. He almost got the 50-50 sweep. And the book was really to try and make sense of my own journey, which was to have experienced that extraordinary moment of American optimism and hope and to go from its mourning in America to the American carnage of Donald Trump's inaugural address, and then the mass mourning in America that we've seen now as a result of COVID-19.
1: It, uh, it was an, an extraordinary time, uh, the 1980s, and that uh, LA Olympic Games, as you say. You were there quite young. What were you doing there? Were you uh, uh, there as an exchange student? Uh, was that the story?
0: My grandma had died just a few months before, and she left me a little bit of money just enough to get that transatlantic flight. And I went there on my own. My father's best man, he'd grown up in Bristol in England, but he'd gone to California to search out the American dream, and he found it. He worked in the aeronautics industry, one of those great West Coast industries. They lived in Orange County in a place called Fountain Valley, uh, just down the road from Newport Beach and Huntington Beach, and they um, allowed me to stay there for the summer. And it was transformative for me. I went there as a very sort of shy young man. I grew up in a country where people were reconciled to their fate from quite an early age. The school I went to, the kids I hung out with, you know, upward mobility was not a given. And I went to California and I went to America and experienced this country of, of infinite possibility. And it was really infectious, and I came out, came back a far more confident young man and a and a far more ambitious young man. And I ended up going to Cambridge University, you know, one of the few people in my school that had ever done that. And I think that formative experience in California really set me up for that. It sort of raised my horizons. It it made me believe that, that I could pursue dreams of my own.
1: Brian, that's a that's a. Pretty American story in its own way, isn't it? Uh, it's a nation built of immigrants, like like Australia, and uh, that that idea of going there, of just the sheer being struck by the sheer opportunity, the multiplicity of options and uh, and possibilities. It's very, very much an American story.
3: Yeah, and I guess growing up in uh, the US, and Nick and I, I, think, are almost exactly the same age, because I think I was the same age in 84 during the Olympics.
1: And indeed, you have two other reasons you were telling me before, that uh, you and Nick uh, have, have been in the same place at the same time.
3: Yeah, and you know, reading this book, I kept on seeing our intersections in time. Although I don't think we've ever met, although maybe we did at a bar and didn't realize it. But Nick, <laughs> when he was working on his PhD in Boston for a year in 1991, I was working on my PhD at Harvard at the same time. And then, much more sadly, uh, I had just arrived on September 10th. 2001 into Seattle on the day before um, the World Trade Center uh, crashes. And Nick talks about being stranded in Seattle and watching the event uh, occur there. So we had these two little intersections in time. But for me, of course, I always grew up in a country that was defined by optimism, where you were told upward mobility is just all up to you. Now, I'll be honest – I was a little skeptical because um, I I was, you know, I could read the tea leaves of upward mobility and what it really meant. But as Americans, we are indoctrinated is that anyone could do anything there. And there was always this ability to just get out and make your way. And I kind of assumed that the rest of the world had that view. But the reality is the rest of the world did not have that view. And it was a great view of a country to have, even if it wasn't Actually, completely borne out in reality.
1: Well, I think just about every country has its own myths, uh, you know, and uh, and and they have a, a unifying function, and uh, and 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 also they are ways of leveraging the potential of the population. But so, you know, America is not alone; it's just the the most dominant country in that regard. Nick, I wonder if we could begin where you begin this book, because um, I mean, I'm I'm obviously an academic now, but uh, I've spent my career in journalism. And I was very struck by uh, some of the points you made right at the beginning of the book. Um, two of them particularly caught my journalist's eye. One is that you um, you have a refreshing sense of, I don't want to make this sound too dramatic, but of of complicity, at least on the part of the profession, in the Trump phenomenon. And this arises from... Um, from your observations about how Trump's been treated but also your own experience interviewing uh, Donald Trump in 2014 I think it was in the Trump Tower um, and uh, and he ogled a, a, a female colleague of yours your producer you would you were doing a TV interview with him uh, and you make the point that at the time although you were you know somewhat confronted by this you certainly didn't call him out on it and and you sort of you declare that Um and you also talk about how just generally speaking, since then and, and, and in 2014, it hadn't even arisen and it didn't come up in the interview that he was going to be a presidential candidate. That was not even on the horizon, but that the way he's been dealt with by media right through that period and since has allowed him to sort of defy political gravity to achieve a level of weightlessness as you, as you described. I wonder if you could just talk to those points for a moment.
0: Yeah, I think we clicked on the terms and conditions of Donald Trump's candidacy as journalists without reading them too carefully and without really considering the implications. And I do think we were complicit to a certain degree in his unexpected rise. Often we talk about journalistic bias in terms of right-wing bias or left-wing bias, but often I talk about better story bias. It's this idea that we write storylines and narratives of campaigns that comport with the kind of campaign that we want to cover. And that is based often on journalistic entertainment value. Now, Donald Trump came along at a time when it wasn't just the Rust Belt that had become this post-industrial landscape, it was the media as well. And Donald Trump, in many ways, threw the media a lifeline. He was the ultimate clickbait candidate. He attracted these extraordinary ratings when he went on these televised debates in the Republican primary campaigns. We knew that interviewing him would make our piece more entertaining. And I think that really helped drive Donald Trump's candidacy. And I say that, you know, often. Um, He seemed to defy the rules of political gravity. But there was a certain extent that journalists did allow him to achieve this weightlessness. As I said, we clicked on the terms and conditions without asking too many questions. Another thing that you say uh,
1: close there too in the essay is that um, you you say that he freely You know, exaggerates. A lot of people would say lies, and certainly there are many lies uh, in there. He he just uh, you know fabricates information all the time. It comes very naturally to him. But you make this really interesting observation. Uh, You say, um, however, his answers were uttered with such complete conviction, I felt sure he could have passed a lie detector test. I mean, I I I, I was particularly taken by that because it just seemed to have very similitude. I mean, that's that that's the Donald Trump that I see. He lies, but he sees it as the truth.
0: Yeah, I think he finds it hard now to distinguish between the two. And I'll admit to you, Mark, I think I got Trump wrong that day um i was struck by how humble he was when i first met him i put out my hand fully expecting him not to shake it because he's such a germaphobe but he he took it very firmly he was excessively polite it was almost as if he regarded the bbc as an offshoot of the british monarchy and he was very lucid he was very intelligent he was very charming when the camera turned on and that red light started flashing it was almost as if he'd sort of imbibed some intoxicant. And it was a very different Trump. It was a very performative Trump. The boast started coming out. He was talking about Atlantic City, but the sales pattern was interchangeable. He would just as easily been talking about Trump states, Trump University, the Tour de Trump, his presidential run, the Trump candidacy. And I have to say that when he became president, I thought he would be the Trump that I saw when I met him before the camera went on. I mean, he was such a performative candidate, but I thought the kind of presidency would maybe rein him in. And within 24 hours of him taking office, it became very clear that actually he would change the presidency more than the presidency would change him.
1: What do you think about that, Brian? Was that your impression as well? I mean, take us back to your thoughts um, watching the arrival of Donald Trump. Did you think he was going to... uh, be a serious president. I think like most of us, did you think that he would eventually, you know, he'd grow into the office, that the office would tame his his wildness and his eccentricity?
3: Well, I mean, I guess I go back to my first interactions with Donald Trump uh, as a young person, which would have been on the David Letterman show, um, which was, you know, sort of a comedian. He was very entertaining and, you know, a little wild and stuff, but harmless is what I would describe him. The, but then, you know, we saw him in the various things, uh, and it was the the debates of the twenty sixteen election, where I saw an angry person who really believed in not just changing things, but uh, as near as I could tell, undermining the rule of law, and that was scary to me because it was said in very sober circumstances. And so, no, I I'm afraid. I hadn't had the opportunity of seeing contemplative um Donald Trump uh as as Nick had in person and you know I've seen these these interviews that have come up uh recently where you do see that side of him talking and that would have lured me in but I you know I I saw fluff and then kind of mean nastiness in in 2016 so I was pretty scared I'll be honest by what I saw um, going in. And so, no, I, I, I haven't I, – I, I prayed for some miracle to occur, but I didn't mm-hmm. go into 2016 or 2017, uh, the inauguration, with any hope whatsoever of it, things turning out okay. <laughs> The, the political class, uh, the elites, as they're
1: often described in the pejorative, uh, have got these things wrong before. We can think of examples in Australia, Pauline Hanson arriving and, 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 and registering with, with a lot of voters or resonating with a lot of voters. Um, the Brexit, uh, campaign, for example, how that resonated, uh, despite elite opinion, the way Donald Trump resonated with, uh, a, a certain America, um, is it fair to say, Nick, that he has been underestimated and that his communication skills, his, his f- facility for connecting with a certain part of America was completely underappreciated?
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think uh, he read the room in twenty sixteen better than we read the room as journalists. And I think part of that reason was a lot of journalists weren't spending enough time in the Rust Belt. Um, I have to say I almost lived in the Rust Belt in two thousand and sixteen. If I'd spent any more time in Pittsburgh and it's the valleys around it where all the old sort of industrial um, that, that sort of post-industrial landscape is found, I would have had to pay local property taxes. So I saw the rage that he was tapping into. I saw how Those empty factories became echo chambers for the slogan, make America great again. I saw the level of hatred towards Hillary Clinton. But the calculation that I made was that she would win the popular vote um, by quite a large margin, and that would translate into an electoral college victory. And, of course, that didn't happen. She won by three million. And yet those three states in the Rust Belt that had gone Democrat, I think, for five elections previously, these big bricks in what was called the blue wall, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, they, of course, went for Donald Trump.
1: We'll take a quick break there and be back in just a moment.
3: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Like me.
2: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today.
0: Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
1: Welcome back when we just before we went to the break nick you were talking about uh, you mentioned the make america great campaign um and we were we, we mentioned a minute before that or so uh the brexit campaign uh the slogan of which was take back control uh, the again in make america great you see that as a a masterstroke i i read in the book uh and you know uh, dominic cummings slogan in the in the Brexit referendum of take back control. Uh, I see a real kind of uh, synergy between these two messages. They're all about a a nostalgia, a kind of a revivalism, but a revivalism of what?
0: Well, that was the genius, I thought, of Donald Trump's campaign slogan, make America great again, because he didn't actually specify when that was. So people could create their own kingdoms of the mind. For some people, it was the 1950s, before the civil rights era before African-Americans started enjoying a full menu of rights, uh, before women were full participants in the workplace, a kind of pre-60s America that is comforting to many Americans. Some people thought it was the Reagan era, uh, that summertime of resurgence in 1984 when everybody was chanting USA, USA. Other people thought it was the 1990s, this unipolar moment after the fall of the Berlin Wall, where America was just preeminent. And you had this extraordinary peace and prosperity of the Clinton years. Now, I'd actually argue that the 90s were pregnant with so many problems that we've experienced in the 21st century. But the genius of Trump was he just left it open ended for voters themselves. They could decide. When America was great again, and he could play on that sense of nostalgic nationalism.
1: It's almost like leveraging that nostalgia that's just sort of lying around on the floor and picking it up and turning it into a, a political currency and using it. Brian, mm. um, the uh, one of the things that Nick the points Nick makes very strongly in the book, and I referred to this in the introduction was the extent to which uh, Trump is can be seen as part of a continuum, albeit a sort of a dramatic development in that continuum but a continuum from the changes that Ronald Reagan made as as a president it, it um, that he was a, an actor come come politician and even as he was going out the door made the observation that he d- didn't know how anyone could really successfully do the job if they weren't an actor um, so in in some ways we, we we tend to think Trump is this completely new phenomenon but Nick's book really shows us that there is this history to it and that Ronald Reagan came along in the 80s and really did change the way
3: politics was done. Certainly, um, Ronald Reagan was a great performer. And, you know, I remember people making fun of it at the time, but it was very effective. And one of the differences between he and Donald Trump is that, you know, he he was someone who tried to bring everyone along. He had quite divisive policies at the time, but he was able to carry them off. Um, and, I mean, I guess there was always a criticism of, did he actually understand trickle-down economics and things like that that um, underpinned uh, his economic reforms at the time? And I'm not sure that he did uh, in detail. Um, So I think one of the big changes that we haven't discussed is is how the media works these days. So I I would argue that the – at media used to have this – this view that it must go through and tell truth and and essentially curate the story and hold people account. But the media has been disintermediated by the internet. And if you go through and aren't flashy, as we talked about um, earlier, um, someone else is going to get the clicks, not you. And so by the internet disintermediating um, what I would describe uh, as sober media – Uh, Sober media has found it just loses its voice, unfortunately, and that's allowed someone like Donald Trump. To take more extreme positions that, you know, Ronald Reagan really didn't have the opportunity to do. Do you
1: agree with that, Nick? Do you think the the media, uh, the changes in the way media have worked, you know, the the technological developments of the digital age have been so so influential?
0: Totally. I mean, going back to the Reagan era, a key moment was when they got rid of the fairness doctrine. This was this idea that uh, radio stations and TV shows should always have a balance of opinion, so both sides in a debate. When that went, um, you saw the rise of the talk shows um, and the right wing talkback hosts like Rush Limbaugh, the irony in the Reagan White House. They thought that this would actually empower liberal media. It uh, actually led to the kind of launch of conservative media in the way that we recognize it today. Another key thing was how um, the impeachment scandal in the late 90s um, really had a transformative effect because it coincided with the introduction of the internet. The story of Monica Lewinsky's affair with Bill Clinton was broken, of course, by the Drudge Report, this site in the wilds of cyberspace that nobody had really ever heard of. You had... Highly respected reporters like Peter Baker, who's now with the New York Times and then was with the Washington Post. They filed their first ever Internet story. Michael Isakoff, who worked for Newsweek, who had the story uh, and they didn't run it. And the Drudge report was based on that. He suddenly found himself writing a, an online story for America Online. So it was this big bang moment um, for news when the Drudge report, when the story, when the Star report came out, it became this kind of online porn phenomenon. Um, you know, this extraordinary sort of clickbait moment. And what we saw was the fragmentation of the media. Traditionally in America, news had been curated by a relatively small amount of major news organizations, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the major TV networks. But we saw this fragmentation. We saw a lot of cable startups like Fox News, like MSNBC, its liberal counterpoint. And then, of course, we see the Internet um, and these startups. And news is no longer curated by organizations who believed in impartiality and a kind of centrist approach and a more sort of consensual America. It became very polarized. And it's fascinating to look at some of the pieces that were written around the time that the Internet came into existence. They were utopian. They thought the internet could be this thing that brings the country together, and obviously, it's been this accelerant of polarization. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And you've, and, and because it's cheaper to
1: do, it's it's allowed this um the these this this kind of um, polarization of the media, this uh, sectionality, I guess you'd say, where where it's actually quite possible there are there are sufficient economies of scale to simply talk to the people who essentially already hold the views that you are reinforcing all the time. And there's a business model in that. And we've seen that right across the Western world.
0: I talk about the polarisation industrial complex, and that is essentially what a lot of the internet became and a lot of the cable channels became. And the pressure that it's put even on sort of traditional news outlets like CNN, the old CNN's DNA was almost indistinguishable from the BBC's Uh, DNA you know a strict impartiality but now of course CNN has become something very different it's become a kind of copy of MSNBC where anchors and even correspondents are invited to deliver monologues and polemics. You know, even CNN realizes that in this age of kind of polarized news, you've got to take one side or the other. It's a really interesting
1: point because I I remember reading, and I think it was David Brooks, I'm just going off my sometimes uh, unreliable memory here, but I think David Brooks wrote in the uh, New York Times, I don't know, it might have been 18 months ago now, uh, that Trump's extremism and the sort of hyperpartisanship of the age has really brought out the worst in his opponents as much as it has brought out in himself and 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 that's shown up in in media outlets that have really lost a sense of, of of balance and and that long-term credibility that they had up until that date.
0: Yeah, I do think that Donald Trump has had an impact on not just the norms of presidential behavior, but the norms of the way that the press cover Presidencies. You know, I'd cite the example of CNN as an organization that has just totally transformed its business model. And it is a business model because what they realized was that people just didn't want to watch unopinionated news anymore. They just weren't that interested in it. And so they decided to take a side. And the side that they obviously took was as, as an anti-Trump news organization.
1: And is it possible to actually not take a side? Uh, I mean, obviously, when the, the New York Times came out with, uh, Donald Trump's tax records in recent days, he instantly said, this is part of the New York Times, uh, ongoing jihad against, the, against me as president. Uh, it's fake news. They made it up, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, the New York Times has obviously therefore been subject to a, you know, strong partisan attack. Has, has a, an organization like that, um, maintained its impartiality or or do you think it's succumbed?
0: I think the New York Times has become more noticeably aggressive in the way that it writes its stories and the way that it headlines its stories. Um, it calls out falsehoods in a way that hasn't been done in the past. But then, you know, we're dealing with an outlier presidency and the norms um, are no longer quite so relevant. I mean, this is a president who's demonstrably been shown to utter falsehoods more than 20,000 times during his presidency. And it's not wrong for the media to point that out. I mean, it it opens you up to accusations of impartiality. Um, It it opens you up to accusations of, of bias, but... You know, that's impartial journalism. We are trying to find the truth. It's that, you know, thing they teach you at journalism school. If somebody tells you it's raining outside and somebody tells you it's sunny, well, look out the window and find out. And, you know, the New York Times with its tax story, I mean, that was a classic case of looking out of the window and finding those tax returns and delivering that blockbuster story. One of the things
1: that uh, struck me about the political culture that is – Quite a revelation and it's a strong theme really throughout your book, uh, a strong theme that comes out um, implicitly in a lot of the discussion about arguments uh, over policy and reform and so forth right through the decades is that in America it seems like a number of uh, things that are decided by legislative victories or court decisions are not over. They they remain the subject of ongoing grievance and a focal point for Opposition. So, whether it be um, you know uh, civil rights decisions, or or Roe v. Wade, um, or or, or electoral reform, or whatever it might be, these things can uh, can simmer away under the surface and and reemerge in ways that I don't think is the case in in Australian society. I mean, we do have obviously things that um, uh, you know that change, um, but we also have. Uh, an acceptance of them becoming part of the norm, generally speaking, after that. And we see this ongoing... I mean, you say at one stage, um, modern-day presidential campaigns have often felt like referendum on the 1960s, that tumultuous mm. decade of divergence. So it's worth remembering that the 60s themselves were in many ways a referendum on the Civil War. There's this great sort of continuous argument and the losers are always hanging around for another fight.
0: Yeah, and I think that's... So important to understand this idea that so many of these debates in America just have not been settled and have never been resolved. The classic one, obviously, is race, the original sin of uh, slavery, uh, the Civil War that, you know, supposedly came to an end, but arguably never did. uh, The era of segregation that followed. And, uh, you know, obviously, um, you know, we still have this problem and, and summers of racial reckoning. Um, like we've just experienced. And one of the reasons, Mark, I think we got Trump wrong was because we got the summer of 2015 wrong. I always remember those 48 hours. On June the 17th, a guy called Dylan Ruth walked into a church in Charleston, South Carolina, and shot dead a group of black uh, parishioners who are having a prayer group. It turned out that he draped himself in the iconography of the Confederacy, that he'd written an online manifesto hoping to spark a race war. And what followed from that was quite extraordinary. I was in South Carolina when I saw uh, the Confederate flag being brought down from the Capitol building there. It really did feel like I was watching the final surrender of the U.S. Civil War. Um, I was in Charleston the day that Barack Obama came down for the funeral of the pastor who was killed that day and and sang Amazing Grace, one of the most electrifying moments of his presidency. It was perhaps the most emphatically African-American moment of his presidency. And he flew back to Washington that night, and the White House was bathed in the rainbow colors uh, because the Supreme Court that day had made gay marriage legal across America. And it seemed like the liberals had won every battle Now, that all stemmed from June the 17th. What we failed to overlook was what happened on June the 16th. That was when Donald Trump came down the golden escalator and launched his presidential candidacy. And the belief was that demography is destiny, that appealing to this kind of white grievances and the white anxieties that the Republicans had used very cleverly over the years just didn't work anymore because America was just too multiracial. Um, And we got that wrong. And... We've regarded it almost as a sort of end of history, um, a triumph of progressivism, and actually what we were watching was the beginning of the conservative fight back.
1: Now, we've uh, only got a couple of minutes left, so I might just wrap up on, on this point, and I'll get a, an impression from both of you about uh, the debate, because it's only 20, we're recording this now 24 hours after the first debate, widely seen around the world as a debacle rather than a, than a debate. Brian what was your impression of of uh you know your uh, country of origins um political system the apotheosis of this uh, of this election campaign as we saw and as many people around the world saw uh 24 hours ago
3: Yeah well I didn't I uh, I guess I foresaw the debate uh turning out in in exactly as it did I expected it to be a brawl um and that's exactly what it was and I think it's completely symbolic of the election this year, so I'm not quite sure why what everyone else was expecting, but it was exactly what I expected, and, and that's sad. But I'm afraid that uh, it, it's symbolic of, of of 2020.
1: Nick, I saw that you tweeted that uh, America was broken uh, in in one tweet, and in another you uh, you lined it up with um, things like the Florida debacle over the election, Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib as notorious American blights. But you said this debate, watched all over the world, had done incalculable soft power damage to the United States.
0: It really has. And it made me think of the first televised debate between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon, two young guys. Um, It was in the midst of the Cold War. And it was a great advertisement for American democracy. It was an elevated debate. It was a substantive debate. It wasn't based on personal slurs and insults. And how, you know, that we used to think of American exceptionalism in that way, something to emulate this city on a hill. Mm. And what we saw last night was American exceptionalism as it is now understood, which is as a negative construct. You know, we think about mass shootings. We think about police brutality. We think about the racial problems. We think about a a politics unhinged. And we think about a, a democracy that just does seem to be, in decay and as Brian said I think it was symbolic it's symbolic of a broader malaise
1: Nick Bryant and Brian Schmidt, uh, I feel like I've been in the presence of greatness with this podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure.
0: And, and uh, to be on with a Nobel Prize winner is um, and, and who, who makes his own Pinot Noir is a very special experience. So thanks for having me on. <laughs> and,
3: and Nick, can I just say uh, your book is truly one of the most outstanding pieces of uh, nonfiction I've read in my life. I don't say that lightly. Uh, truly outstanding read and you should be congratulated.
1: Yes, I would. I would second that. A really, really fabulous book. Uh, it's called "When America Stopped Being Great: A History of the Present," and it's from Penguin Viking. Thanks to both of you for a fabulous discussion today. I'm Mark Kenny. I'll be back before you know it with another Democracy Sausage. Bye for now. <music>